Reading from Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 39. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, 
Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to, to you, you, Lord Christ. Friends, let's pray. Almighty Father, there were many people crucified 2,000 years ago. And every one of them was a horror. And 2,000 years later, we remember this one, which in some ways was so much like the others, but in every deep and significant way was so much unlike them. And this is the one, this story is the one that we will tell to each other throughout all the ages of eternity to come. And we will tell of this with that a certain kind of thankful joy, which is heavy as well. And this is the story which makes all of hell shudder in fear. And Father, I ask now that you will set upon us the weighty majesty of this death. that you will weigh us down with the glory of Jesus's victory to the point where we may join with the centurion and say, looking at Jesus, surely this is the son of God. And for those of us for whom we have never said that, let this be the day and the year in which we see that the, the cross of Christ is the victory, your victory over evil, our evil, and for those of us who have walked with Jesus for a long time, let this be a day and this be a year in which that victory runs deeper into our souls and we are lifted higher into your presence and into your service and do that good and magnificent work and do it now. And as we consider your word, will you speak and will you grant us to hear? In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, team. <clears throat> so today's Palm Sunday. And uh, Palm Sunday can look in two directions at the same time, often does. Um, on the one hand, as you know, we can, look, we can look to the Sunday before Jesus's crucifixion where he entered Jerusalem. Do you remember this story? We referenced it earlier on. He enters Jerusalem and the crowd goes wild. Everybody's really excited. They throw down palm, tree, uh, palm branches before him, which was a sign of saying, hey, you're the king. And they're really excited. Or on Palm Sunday, we can look towards the fact that about five days later, some of the people in that same crowd turned on Jesus and he was crucified. Now, today, we are not looking at Jesus entering Jerusalem. We are looking at Jesus's death upon the cross. And uh, we're going to consider one of the most fundamental convictions in Christianity. And here it is. You ready? Here's one of the fundamental convictions of Christianity. Jesus' death on the cross 
is how God triumphs over evil. Jesus' death upon the cross is not a defeat. Looks like a defeat, doesn't it? It felt like a defeat to Jesus' disciples, but despite that, it was the conviction of Christianity is that it was, in fact, not a defeat. It was rather God triumphing over evil. Tom Holland is a historian. I've mentioned him before, and he writes this. He says this. He says, the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, at least to all those who worship Jesus as the son of the Lord God, was not merely an event in history, but the very pivot around which the cosmos turns, the very pivot around which the cosmos turns. Now, let me ask you a question. How does that land on your mind? The fact that that the cross, the death of Jesus is the very pivot around which the cosmos turns. How does that strike you? Now, my guess is that for some of us, if you've been a Christian for a long time, there's a likelihood that the idea that that Jesus's death is a victory, there's a likelihood that, that Maybe that seems obvious to you. Maybe you're like, uh, clearly. Um, Maybe you've heard it all of your life. And maybe, ask yourself this question, maybe it doesn't move you that much. But on the other hand, I can imagine somebody who maybe is not a Christian or maybe somebody who's looking at this story again for the first time, so to speak. And you might be thinking, hey, listen, I can see how Jesus's execution is a tragic, horrible example of evil. I can see how it's a terrible... uh, 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 a tragic martyr situation, but I cannot see, I can imagine somebody saying, I cannot see how it's any kind of defeat of evil. Now, if that's what comes up for you, you might be in a better position to grasp the real meaning of Jesus's death than someone who has been a Christian for a very, very long time. It is easy for those of us who have been Christian for a long time to be so used to Jesus's death and the idea of Jesus's death that we no longer feel the, the scandal of it or the perplexing aspect of it. And perhaps it's easy for us to no longer notice its power. Historian Tom Holland again says this, quote, the belief that the son of the God of the Jews had been tortured to death on a cross became so enduringly and widely held that today most of us in the West are dulled to just how scandalous it originally was. So as we begin, my question to you, especially to you who identify as Christians is this, is your heart just a touch dulled to the cross? And if that's true, if that is the case, then I want to see, be, say, be very, very careful because that dullness could end up sabotaging absolutely everything in the Christian life. And on the other hand, if you look at Jesus's death and, and you look at it and it appears to you to be the opposite of a triumph, then take heart because all of Jesus's disciples thought it was a defeat as well. And all of their lives were completely transformed when they discovered that it was a victory. And what I want to point out and to try to describe is in what way Christ's cross is a victory over evil. Now, to do that, we're going to start at the end of the reading, the really long reading about Jesus' death. We're going to start at the end. We're going to start at the very end. We're going to start by talking about the centurion. Look at the very last verse in our reading. It says this, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, 
I think that's one of the strangest verses in the Bible. In fact, I cannot completely explain that verse to my own satisfaction. Here's what I mean. So think about the centurion for a second. A centurion is Roman, um, a Roman soldier. The centurion's job was to kill people. So this was the guy that told the other soldiers something like this. And he, he said to the other soldiers, I want you to hold down that guy called Jesus. I want you to hold down his arm. I want you to drive nails through his wrists. And I want you to pin him to that piece of wood. And then using ropes, I want you to hoist him up so that he slowly and painfully dies of either exposure or suffocation. That's what the centurion had just done. And that's how crucifixion worked. And crucifixion was extremely common at this time. It was a really common way for the Romans to kill people. And in particular, it was a really common way for uh, Romans to torture and kill slaves. So Roman citizens could not be crucified. It was against the law. Their status was too high. And Jewish law did not endorse crucifixion either. But Rome used crucifixion as a way to show everybody that basically this is what happens when slaves or other low status people get out of line. They end up hanging up on a cross. And, and the idea is, is that as people walked by, they, they crucify people next to the road. So as people walk by, they, you know, there's a vivid reminder. Don't do the stuff that puts you there. Now, this was just another day at the office for the centurion. And there's a way in which this centurion, if you kind of consider him for a minute, there's a way in which this one man sort of represents a whole series of train wrecks of evil at this time. So quite obviously, he's an agent of Rome and the Roman Empire. He's carrying out Pilate's orders. Uh, Pilate was the Roman governor. And, and Rome's philosophy went something like this. Um, Rome thought to Rome self, uh, Rome, we are here to keep the peace. And peace will only happen if we use coercive force to keep everybody in line, Rome says to Rome self. And if, Rome says to Rome self, if we don't use coercive force to keep everybody in line, then chaos will happen. So, Rome thinks to Rome self, unfortunately, sometimes innocent people have to die in order to keep everybody else under control. Peace, says Rome, comes through violent and coercive power. Now, that was kind of Rome's gospel, Rome's message, Rome's uh, deep uh, philosophy that gave it a kind of mission uh, in terms of its empire. And you have to appreciate the fact that that message, peace through coercive power, that, that message like looked kind of manifestly true at this day, right? Because no one was more powerful than Rome. No one could control like Rome could control. Rome, Rome won almost all the time. And Rome's victory uh, achieved a certain type of order. And so the centurion living in that system, having been trained in that system, I'm sure that all the goodness of that system must have just seemed self-evident to him. This is just the way the world works. But of course, all of that, or none of that, changes the fact that he was torturing an innocent man. And he was an instrument 
of political evil. But then there's another way which indirectly he was also an instrument of religious corruption. Now, he was a Roman. He was not a part of the Jewish uh, religious system. But nevertheless, the religious leaders were allied with Rome in killing Jesus. And, and we find out in the Gospel of John that the religious leaders were in some sense trying to protect their religious institutions by killing Jesus. So um, according to the Gospel of John, they were afraid that if Jesus continued to grow in popularity, that the Romans would come in and that the Romans would use their coercive force to take away the temple and to take away the rights of the Jewish nation. And therefore, in an effort to protect their religious institutions, they allied themselves with Rome, they subverted their own laws, and they uh, participated in arranging Jesus's death. And therefore, as the centurion is torturing and killing Jesus, he's indirectly an instrument, not only of political corruption, but of the religious corruption of the day as well. Political evil, religious evil. He's in some sense a participant of these big, big movements of evil. But then here's the other thing. Underneath and in the midst of all of those big, big evils like political evil and religious evil, there were countless little smaller evils of the heart. And it's the evils of the heart that animate those bigger systems. So the religious leaders, we find out in verse 10 of our reading, they were envious. You ever been envious? Do you have any personal experience of being envious? Or Pilate is clearly selfish. How about that one? And you know, it's really easy to, to, to look at political evil or religious corruption and stand apart from it and look at it and say, oh, those are terrible, terrible things. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. And even as we say that, as we call out the evil that is out there in those big relig or religious or political systems, even as we do that, we can distance ourselves and we can say, at least I'm the kind of person that can call out that kind of evil. But now if we look in, into our hearts and into the hearts of the people who are participating in Jesus's death, we can find that they kind of resemble our own hearts because they're envious, aren't you? And they're selfish, aren't you? And we could go down the line and we could find greed in this story and we could find covetousness in this story and we could find lust for power and ambition and hatred and a thousand other hidden sins of the heart that you and I could recognize in them and we could also recognize in our own heart because big corporate Evil is always allied and animated by small sins of the heart, which we are participants in as well. And so when you look at this centurion, on the one hand, he's a participant in the big, scary evils of his day and our day, but he is also representative of the evils that are resident within our own hearts. He's a participant in evil. But now I can also, I can hear somebody say, well, hang on, you're giving the centurion a little bit of a hard time because he was following orders. He was following orders. To which I respond, totally, good point. So the centurion is a participant in evil, but he is also a prisoner of evil. There's a way in which the evil around him holds him tight and there does not seem to be a clear way for him to escape. But now with all of that in mind, consider again how strange his reaction is. Like, do you see my question? Why, like why in the world, how in the world does this centurion recognize Jesus as God's son the moment Jesus dies? Because he's killed hundreds before this. What made this one different? 
and the thing that kind of drives me crazy is that Mark doesn't really tell us what's going on in the mind of the centurion. I kind of wish he did, but he doesn't. I can't tell you what it is that the centurion saw that changed everything for him. I can guess, but that's not helpful. But what Mark does tell us is not so much what's happening in the centurion's mind. Mark tells us what God is doing in the background at the same moment. And apparently that's more important. Look at verse 38. Actually, before you look, don't look. Before you look, picture the scene. So all through Mark's account of Jesus's life, the camera has been fixed on Jesus. Jesus is in almost every single scene. And that continues right up to the moment when Jesus dies. But then the second Jesus dies, Mark doesn't give us a moment to breathe. Instantly, Jesus breathes his last and the scene cuts to the temple. The temple? The temple. Temple's like, I don't know, three quarter of a mile away, something like that. And the scene zooms in, not just on the temple, but inside the temple, and not just on the inside of the temple, but at the very center of the temple, the most exclusive part of the temple. And there you find a curtain. A curtain? Look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And what's going on here? Why the temple? Why the curtain? Why the tearing? Well, what's a temple, real quick? So temple in the Bible is where you go to meet with God. Or better, it's a place where you go uh, to have very, very limited and extremely regulated access to God. Example, um, I used to live in London. Uh, I was a pastor in London. And uh, sometimes I would visit uh, a particular prisoner at Pentonville Prison. And uh, Pentonville Prison was this kind of old Victorian prison in the middle of London. It was all brick and iron. And if you wanted to visit a prisoner, um, I couldn't obviously just go straight to their cell. And they couldn't come out of the prison, clearly, to visit me. Um, we had to meet in a very specific place. And we met in a chapel within the prison. So I, I had to go through lots of security. Um, I, I, I had to, like... I couldn't take anything in with me except for a Bible. And I think they even they had to flip through that. Um, you'd, I'd go through door after door with a buzz and a clink. And then it, the door would lock behind me. And I'd be in this situation where I'm locked from both sides. And they check me out. And then I'd go into the next bit. It was extremely regulated. And then finally, I'd get to the chapel. And there, the prisoner and I could sit down facing each other with supervision. And we could talk. And the chapel in the middle of the prison uh, facilitated a limited access between me and the prisoner. And, and in one sense, it was wonderful because it meant that we could uh, speak and pray and read the Bible together. But in another way, it was terrible because everything, all the regulation and the security screamed out that this man was not yet free. Now, the temple worked like that. The temple in the Hebrew scriptures was an extremely regulated way where God and God's people could meet limited. But all of its regulations and all of its limitations continually cried out to the people of Israel, you are both, you've got to remember, it's as if the temple was continually crying out, God wants to meet with you, but you've also got to appreciate that you are a participant in evil and also a prisoner of evil. And until that evil is defeated, said the temple to the people of God, you will not have full access to God. But now I want you to imagine that you're my friend 
in Pentonville prison and you're sitting in your cell and all of a sudden you hear a loud buzz and a clink and the door of your cell swings open and there is a security guard, not with a frown, but with a smile and he gestures to you to come out of your cell. And then you go to a door and you hear a buzz and a clink and the door opens and you see a guard and the guard does not frown, but smiles and gestures for you to exit through that door. And that happens again and again, a buzz and a clink and a welcome smile from a guard gesturing you outward beyond each level of security until finally you walk out of prison and there you find your family waiting and they run to you and they embrace you and you find that you have been granted a full amnesty and you are free. That's what the tearing of the curtain in the temple meant. And that's why Mark wants us to see the temple. Mark, you know, I, I don't know. I, if I was writing Mark, I'd, I'd kind of like, let's put in some detail about, about Jesus's uh, corpse on the cross and really kind of weigh down the reader with the tragedy of this moment. But that's not what Mark does. Mark wants us to not look at Jesus's corpse. He wants us to see what Jesus's death achieved. And that's why he wants us to look at the temple and he wants us to look at a curtain and he wants us to watch it tear in two. Because that means that participants of evil and prisoners of evil can gain amnesty and freedom and full relationship with God in a way that had never happened before. Of course, Mark wants us to look at a torn curtain. And of course that brings up the question, well, how in the world could Jesus's death achieve that kind of freedom? And in a way that's the question that we started with, right? How can Jesus's death be a victory over evil? the evil that imprisons us, the evil in which we are participants. Well, back up yet again. When you read the story of Jesus, one of the things that comes, uh, that kind of jumps off the page, page at you is that Jesus, unlike anybody else around him, is not a participant in evil and Jesus is not a prisoner of evil. Um, but what Jesus is, he does tell us that Jesus is a ransom for evil. He's neither a participant nor a prisoner of evil. He's a ransom for evil. Or better, Jesus tells us that he is a ransom for participants and prisoners of evil. What I mean is Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this. Jesus says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that's what was happening when Jesus was suffering and dying upon the cross. And you can see it in verse 33. Do you see that there? Do you see the darkness? So in the Old Testament, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, and particularly in the uh, prophet Amos, darkness in the middle of the day, you know, it's not supposed to happen. Darkness in the middle of the day is a sign of God's hostility against evil. And in Amos, in the Old Testament, it's specifically God's just hostility against the religious corruption and evil of his people. But here... The darkness signifies that God's just hostility against evil is coming down not upon participants of evil, not upon the prisoners of evil, but rather upon Jesus Christ, upon the one who serves by giving himself as a ransom for the guilty. And do you see how Jesus, under the weight of that just hostility, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? He was quoting Psalm 22. We read it earlier in the service. 
And Psalm 22 describes the horror of being separated or cut off from God and being alienated from God. And yet, in a remarkable way, Psalm 22 also tells us that there is hope that somehow God's going to rescue us and liberate us from that alienation. Well, when Jesus is on the cross, he quotes that psalm because he is both in that moment experiencing the alienation from God and also rescuing us from that alienation by ransoming us back to God. And in other words, he was walking into Penton, Pentonville jail and he was taking our place and he was serving our sentence in our place so that we could walk out free. In other words, Jesus died. As Jesus died, he was tearing the curtain of the temple in two so that we could have free access to God so that evil no longer needs to win in our story. And that is why, friends, the cross of Christ is a victory. And that is why the cross of Christ is where God defeated evil. And that is why for 2,000 years, Christians have been telling the story of this crucifixion. And as heavy as it is, it is the epicenter of our joy. But I'm still amazed at how the centurion figured that out. I don't know how he figured out that this was something of victory here. I don't know how he saw it. I don't know how much he understood in this moment, but in a remarkable way, the centurion, he could see that this man whom he had just tortured and killed, somehow he could see that he is the true son of God. And somehow in that moment, as he looked upon Jesus upon the cross, he could see that Caesar, who had been his Lord up until that moment, he could see that Caesar was no true Lord at all. And he could see that Caesar was no longer ordinary, would never really had been the true son of God. He could see that Caesar was a fake and that the gospel of Caesar, this peace through coercive power and the 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 requirement to submit yourself to the evil of this world. He could see all of that was a lie because he could look at Jesus Christ and he could see that Jesus was the real thing. I don't know how he figured all that out, but I suppose that the most important question for you and me today is not how did he figure, that, figure it out. The question for you and me is have we? Have I figured that out? Have you figured that out? Can you see the victory of Jesus Christ? Can you see that he's the real thing? Can you see that he is the way to be liberated from the evil in which you are a participant and which will otherwise imprison you forever? Let me end by asking some more specific questions. Has the cross of Christ driven you to a deep humility? The centurion saw that, that he had killed God's son. And just consider how devastating that must have been for him. But it was also crucial that he see it. It was crucial that he saw in that moment that he was both a participant and a prisoner of evil and sin and death. And that's true for you and me as well. Emmanuel, I need to ask you a very important question. Can you see that you are a participant and a prisoner of evil and sin? If you can't, then you need to. Right now, whether you identify as a Christian or not, look at the cross of Christ until you find yourself cut to the heart and disabused of all our arrogance and disabused of the false idea that we're okay and that we can uh, separate ourselves 
from the evil that is around us. We can't, you can't, I can't, come on. We are prisoners and participants of evil and we must be rescued by ransom. And Jesus is the only way that's gonna happen. Look at the cross of Christ until you feel yourself the humility that God worked in the centurion. But then my second question is this, has the cross of Christ driven you to hope? The centurion lived in a world in which it seemed like evil was the only practical way to get by, right? It seemed like just evil, especially the evil of Rome was just the undisputed winner. Uh, Trouble is it was not the winner. Jesus' death robbed evil of its ultimate final power. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, then you can be sure that he liberates you from the prison of evil. And he will liberate you in the end, even from being a participant in evil. And he will redeem all that belongs to him. He will redeem you with the same certainty that even his own body was restored in the resurrection. You can have hope when you look at Jesus Christ. And we're living in a moment in which hopelessness kind of seems a bit realistic, right? Um, The trouble is if we live in hopelessness, if we look at the evil around us and we're like, dude, I just, I think it's just gonna win. If we do that, then we will compromise with evil. And this is part of the reason that led the religious leaders of Jesus's day to compromise with Rome. They had given up hope. They could not trust and hope in the God of Israel anymore. Hopeless people grasp for power in evil ways. They've done it all along. Emmanuel, don't go that path. Look to the cross until you know the hope of Jesus's victory. And then you will have a a power, a power that comes from Christ himself to follow Jesus even in the midst of the evil day. There is no evil in this world and there is no evil in your heart that cannot be defeated by the cross of Christ. If you follow Jesus, you will suffer, absolutely. There will be pain, but Jesus will walk with you through that suffering and through that pain, and he will hold you safe to the end, and he will make even your suffering a path to glory just like it was his path to glory. So look at the cross until it humbles you, and look at the cross until it fills you with hope. And then finally, my last question is this. Has the cross filled you with a vision for real transformation? The death of Jesus Christ began transforming lives before Jesus was even off the cross. Do you get that? God wasted no time. The minute Jesus breathed his last, God reached down to the man who had just drilled holes in his son's body and then awakened that centurion to his own sin. And it seems drew him to himself. And that's what God has been doing ever since. And I want to know, do you have a vision for God's transforming work in your own life. And not only that, do you have a vision for God's transforming work in the lives of people around you? Look at the cross until you gain that vision, both for your own life and for those around you. Jesus purchased your ransom by his death. If you trust in him, you can be sure that your cell gate is unlocked and open. And Jesus calls you to freedom. And he also calls you to spend your freedom serving him just like he served you. And part of that means that Jesus calls you to pray for others and to share with others the good news that Jesus defeated evil and can defeat the sin of their own hearts.
Emmanuel, do you have that vision? Look at the cross of Christ this week. Look at the cross of Christ this week until it leads you to humility and then from humility to hope and then from hope to vision for your own transformation and the transformation of those around you. Look at the cross of Christ and you will see it is the victory upon which the whole cosmos pivots. Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.